0: Good morning, St. Andrews. What a privilege it is to be worshipping with you this morning. If you have your Bibles with you, I want you to turn to Romans chapter 10. Our reading comes from verses 1 to 4. And they say it's easier to ask for forgiveness than to get permission. So this morning I'm going to, do a, I'm going to experiment I'm going to share our ministry on the template of what Paul says here, and hope it'll be a blessing to you. Paul writes in Romans 10, verses 1 to 4. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Let us pray. Father God, we come before you this morning And Lord, we recognize that you are God, and we are your people. And Lord, what an incredible picture it is of you moving throughout this world, throughout time and history. And in procession is your church. You, the missionary God. You, the God who brings peoples and nations to yourself, and you invite your church to participate in this magnificent enterprise, you invite us to share the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, this morning we pray that, God, you will see fit to bless your word. That you will see fit to bless the speaker in bringing this word that it will touch the hearts of your people it will shake us and remind us of the truth and of this glorious privilege that we have to participate with you in this mission father we pray this alone in the name of our lord and savior jesus christ amen forgive me i did not give you an opportunity to respond after the reading of the word. But nonetheless, let me continue with the introduction. Well, when most people think of, of Native Americans, I, I would I would go as far as to say that we have a misplaced notion of who Native Americans are. In fact, when we think of them, at least I did living in South Africa, our minds Harken back to the era of the American pioneer. If you like the time of Lewis and Clark, who explored the vastness of the land with the help of Sacagawea, a Lemi shawnee woman. In fact, our ideas of the Wild West have been shaped by Hollywood, with films that have blood-curdling Indians chasing settlers across the plains. Movies like Hidalgo, dances with wolves, the last of the Mohicans and Revenant. They stirred up our imaginations to conceive of indigenous peoples as stoic, noble, and yet savage. But a deeper investigation, a study of American history tells us another story. In fact, At the founding of this nation, the Indians numbered a conservative estimate is around 14 million. Some estimations are up to 26 and higher. But at the turn of the 20th century, the federal census revealed that there were only 250,000 natives left. An expanding American nation left a trail of horror as Indians were engulfed and displaced, resulting in the plight that eclipsed, if you like, even the Jewish Holocaust. Genocidal war, oppression, deculturalization, and relocation has resulted in today approximately 576 tribes throughout the U.S. And they are a shadow of their former selves. Listen to what one author commentated. The last chapter in any successful genocide is one in which the oppressor can remove his hand and say, What are these people doing to themselves? They're killing each other. They're killing themselves. Lawrence Webster, his English name, Born of the Squamish tribe, just south of Seattle, wrote this in 1908. Death was the only way you could get home. It had to be sickness or death. Before they let you out. Asa dakluugi. Chiricahua Apache said this in 1886. The next day, the torture began. They cut our hair and we'd lost our clothes. And with these two, we'd lost our identity as Indians. Captain Richard Pratt said this in 1879. If we can just transfer the savage to the surrounding civilization, he will grow to possess a civilized language and habits. Indeed, kill the Indian and save the man. That was the carrion of the federal educational establishment. You see, the noble savage had to be socially shaped and re-educated. He needed to be brought into a uniformed national culture. (coughs) The federal purging of these nations meant nothing less than vast numbers of Indians dying. And those that survived seem to be irreparably damaged. And here's the thing. This is a notable concern. The church participated in it. Now, this is where it gets so interesting as we look at our text. Because there are similarities between Israel and Native Americans. The first thing is the occupation of their lands and the dislocation of the people. And secondly, and very importantly, and I'm going to focus on this, is their religious pursuit of righteousness. You see, Israel was born of the promises to Abraham, but their journey included slavery in Egypt, captivity in Babylon, and rebuilding Jerusalem under the Medo-Persian Empire. Then came oppression again. Under the Greek Empire, there was the Maccabean revolt under the Seleucids, and then, of course, the Hellenistic influences did nothing more than pave the way for Roman occupation and oppression for the Hebrew people. But so is the story of the North American Indians. They were herded onto reservations, and from this oppressive context emerged horrible circumstances and a spirituality that is now in defiance of what they call or term colonial christianity so what am i going to do this morning i am going to weave together these two stories israel and Native America, both of whom, as Paul writes, and you can have a look there, have a zeal for God, but it is not according to knowledge. Rather, they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, seek to establish their own. They, Paul writes, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. So let's unfold the plight of the American Indian. Against the backdrop of Paul's concern for Israel's salvation. And we're going to do this by way of three points. They actually get shorter, so don't panic uh, if, if it seems too long. But I'm going to do it by way of three points. And the first is this by the river of Babylon and the trail of tears. And then I want to look at this ignorant zeal for righteousness. And I conclude by building a new house, a new temple. Amongst the Indians. So let's enter the body of the sermon by way of the first point. By the river of Babylon and the trail of tears. For years, God had warned Judah to stop committing idolatry. Do you know your Old Testament? You'll understand that the northern brethren, their northern brethren, the ten tribes of Israel, they had rejected the prophets' warnings and they had been completely engulfed. By the Assyrians. Their culture. Everything about them were destroyed. The same was beginning to happen. To the two southern tribes. And the consequences. For them. Were just as devastating. King nabuchodonosor of Babylon. Comes marching into the land of Israel. He destroys Jerusalem. And he leads the people into captivity. And as they look back. At the smoke rising. From Jerusalem. In distress, they march on. And in Psalm 137, we read this hymn of reflection and emotional distress. Because it's impossible for these people to praise God. Listen to these words. The psalmist writes, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. When we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hang up our lyres, our harps. For there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Come along, sing us one of those songs of Zion. You can hear them mocking. But how, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? One of my favourite preachers, the late Dr. James Montgomery Boyce, Said this of the psalm. He said, Every line is alive with pain, and its intensity grows with each stroke to the appalling climax. Indeed, the pain and humility found in the psalm echoes the words of a young Cherokee boy who was nine years old when he got carried off into captivity. Samuel Cloud wrote the following years later. He said, It is spring. The leaves are on the trees. I am playing with my friends when men in uniform ride up to our home. My mother calls me. I can tell by her voice that something is wrong. She tells me, Quickly, gather your things. But the men, they didn't allow us time to get anything. They enter our home, smashing everything. My mother and I are taken by several men to where their horses are, and there we held at gunpoint. The men rode off, returned with my father, Elijah. We are gathered together, and we are told to walk at the point of a bayonet. And they lead us up to a stockade. They herd us into the pen like cattle. No one was given time to gather any possessions. The knights... It's so cold in the mountains. And we do not have blankets to go around. Several months have passed until we are marched west to join the western Cherokee. I have a short young told, Samuel, your father has died. It is now winter as we walk across the frozen earth. The cold seeps through my clothes. I wish I had my blanket. Each day they bury the dead in shallow graves. We walk past the white towns. They come out to watch us. Pass. No, no words are spoken. No words are said to us. Still, I wish they'd stop staring. A chill wind blows for us as we wait by the frozen river. We wait to die. My mother is coughing now. Her hands are burning hot. When I wake up, she is no more. My clan, they'll take care of me. We bury her in a shallow grave by the road, but the sh- the, sh- the, sh- the soldiers make us continue to march on. And I walk in lonely- loneliness. I, I know what it is to hate. And I hate these soldiers who took us from our home, who make us keep walking through the snow and ice towards this new home that none of us ever wanted. I hate the people, the people who line the roads in their woolen clothes that kept them warm, watching us pass by. None of those people cared about us. All they ever saw was the color of our skin. Beloved friends, this attempted cultural genocide failed, at least of Israel, failed. Because we read. That under Esther, God had a plan of restoration and returning Israel uh, to their land. The wicked Haman hung on his own gallows, as Ezra and Nehemiah continued westward and rebuilt Jerusalem and the temple. But the same cannot be said for the Native Americans, the dissolution of their nations. It was tremendously successful. And it led to awful social circumstances that continue to this day. And let me remind you, a religion that is deeply, deeply anti-Christian. In fact, I would argue that they fully embraced Paul's words in Romans chapter 2, where we read that they knew of God, but they didn't glorify him but became futile in their thoughts. Their hearts were darkened and they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. With history's injustices towards natives and the church's complicity in the Civilization Fund Act of 1819, tribes today have begun forming sovereign nations. They are rebuilding Their uh, their religion and their civilization and their cultures upon the fragments of what they're digging out of the earth. They're redeveloping their religious traditions by way of their ancient myths. And it's posing a massive challenge for the return of missionaries. We have touched just briefly a bird's eye view. Of Native American history in general. It's not all the same, but you hopefully are getting a little feel for it. Now, I want to move into the second point, and I want to share with you their zeal. This is so important their spiritual zeal, which is purposefully ignorant of the righteousness that God has provided, an, igno- an ignorant zeal of righteousness. Listen, when we look at the tumult of uh, years of Israel's oppression under the world empires, we we notice between the Old and the New Testament, I know we we just turn one or two pages and we move from ancient history into the New Testament, and one doesn't fully appreciate that there's 400 years between the Old and the New Testament. There was no prophet sent to Israel. In fact, the Jews looked up to heaven and said, Lord, where are you? Where is Messiah? But it seemed like heaven's doors were shut tight. Not a whisper came to them. And the response? The response by Israel was to develop the rabbinical traditions. Oh, they thought to please God, what we would do is we would write about 600 little laws. You see, we can keep them. We cannot keep the Ten Commandments, but we can keep them. And we'll, we'll shape our righteousness around these rabbinical law, laws. Surely, surely God would be pleased with us then. If you look at the text, I think this is what Paul, the point Paul is trying to make. He says, Israel has a zeal for God, but it is not according to knowledge. Rather, they being ignorant of God's righteousness, they seek to establish their own. And what happens? 400 years passes by. And then all of a sudden, Messiah comes. Jesus arrives on the stage of history and he declares that the kingdom of God has come, Matthew chapter 4. He vanquishes the demonic hordes and he exercises them from people. He heals the sick. He reconciles the outcast. He brings in the marginalized women, tax collectors, drunkards, prostitutes. And he says this. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. Now imagine that. Messiah stands before you. And makes these amazing proclamations. And subdues the demonic world. You would think that Israel would be very grateful. Not so. No. They get angry. Because Jesus was calling humanity back to the simplicity of the Mosaic law. The Mosaic law was a revelation into the character of God. It was an explanation of who he is and what God expects of humanity. But that was too simple. It was also a realization that humanity could not fulfill it. So... We needed a savior. But the spiritual leaders and the lawyers of Israel, they're offended. Because they sought applause. They dug deeper, entrenching themselves into man-made religion or, or traditions. And they were negligent of the scriptures. And thereby they became ignorant of the heart of God. You see, to them, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself was lost in this zealous striving of works righteousness. You see, if I just do this, if I just do that, God will be pleased. And when I stand before him, he'll weigh up all my good works, and and he'll say, wow, Bob, I hope ah, there is a Bob in the church. Um, You can enter into heaven. But that's, that's not what the scriptures teach us. Instead of embracing him, Israel crucified him with malicious ignorance. Now listen, the rejection of Christ has repeated itself within Native American history. Not because of who Christ is, but because of how he was declared to them. You see, the church believed that for natives to become Christians, they must be reculturalized. The life-saving gospel became nothing more than a civilizing tool, which meant nothing less than the Indians had at first become white inside. Hmm. To the Indians, Jesus became the white man's God. And as civilization acts were being applied to these various nations, families were dissolved, children removed and placed in boarding schools. There's, there is a gentleman within our uh, Lummi men's Bible study who shared the story one day, one evening. He said, he said, gentlemen, I was a little boy and we were told by the government to go play hide and seek. And my brothers all ran into the forest while the social worker kept me there with her, holding me back. And she said, We'll come and we'll come and look for you. And my brothers disappeared into the forest. He said, They took me, they put me in a car. I never saw them again. It's been, I think, 40, 45 years he returned to the reservation to find himself, to find his brothers, his siblings was a man lost without his people but by good providence he will share that God saw fit to take me and to bring me into a Christian family that gave me the gospel and to this day this man is a man trying to find his place in this world but he has the gospel and without that anchor of faith he would have been completely lost like so many of his people. I share that because you see the white man's Christ has become Jesus the destroyer of native civilizations and the residual effect of years of oppression, the dissolution of families, our suicide rates four times higher than the national average. Substance abuse, human trafficking, especially under the last two years of COVID. Little Indian children just disappearing, never coming home. Rumor has it that they're somewhere in the Far East. Poverty. Today, Indians are classified by missiologists as a misreached people group. With less than 2% professing faith in Christ. For some of you who were there, uh, were at the men's breakfast, I I shared how God had brought the gospel to them, arguably between 1500 and 500 years ago. But unfortunately, the misdirected missional efforts and cross-cultural shortcomings has led to us, the church, having massive challenges. But on top of that, the church has developed a guilty conscience and it has led to the tribes becoming forgotten. Indeed, we're too embarrassed. We don't know how to deal with them. And the result is not only that we're embarrassed, but we simply don't want to deal with it anymore. And and when we do encounter them, as as, um, Jonathan Edwards says, we're too interested in fixing them. And I will tell you, you cannot. You cannot fix them, but you can love them. And you can preach the gospel. Listen, it has left Native Americans antagonistic towards the gospel. And what they've done, as I explained earlier, is they've begun to reanimate their old traditional belief systems. They're resurrecting their myths, and they've turned or returned to their ancient ways. The Laktamish, the Lami, one of the people groups we work up there, are known as the Chichesh Kwekwelek. They are the people who claim to have survived the Noahic flood. Imagine that. In their mythology, they acknowledge that the world was flooded. They practice Shalangan or Shalangan. It's a life of hospitality that is drawn from the land and the sea. And then, they build these magnificent long houses within our totems and outside our totems. And they ignite the smoke and the fires, I should say, in these long houses and the smoke houses. Many of them wear animal skins. They paint their bodies in black and red and sometimes in earthen brown. And they dance around the fires. And they seeking King the Great Spirit through the ancestors. And they pray for their song. This starts in the in October and it ends in March when the frogs croak. That's when they know it's time to end. And they dance and they dance and they dance until they receive their song of redemption. And they will not stop until they receive that song. As I said to the men, don't ever complain about long sermons or, um, <laughs> or worship services because... That is long. But they dedicated. They're dedicated to receiving redemption. In fact, I I spoke to a Swinomish tribal leader a few years ago. And we spoke about Christianity. He claims to be a Christian. I spoke to him about the person of Jesus Christ. And he acknowledges Christ. But he said to me, Michael, you do not appreciate what was taken away from us. To be Indian is to have our own spirituality. And so he described uh, the the problem that they're facing as, as the world or religion being this big mountain. And all these religions from around the world clamoring up from different sides of the mountain. And when we all get to the top, we will find God. That's heartbreaking not work like that. We don't work to climb the mountain and get to the top and there God says, welcome, my good and faithful servant. Because it doesn't depend on us. It doesn't depend on how sincere we are. And I will tell you, this is the zealousness that Native Americans have. This was the zealousness of the Jews as they sought to fulfill their 600 little laws. It is a zeal and it is a dangerous zeal, because it is so misplaced, and it is a powerful spiritual motivation that develops in the heart of humans, that culturally blinds us to the self-righteous work, to a self-righteous work cult. What we do becomes more important than what Christ offers. And do we not see that in Jesus' rebuke when he says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you compass the sea and land to make proselytes. And when he's made, you make him twofold more. The child of hell than yourselves. Those words must resonate within us. Because that is the end. Of those who seek God without Christ. And you know what? Of this kind of zeal, there is no end. And what makes this zeal so dangerous is that it lacks knowledge that accompanies it. This is what Paul says in verse 3. In Israel's case they sought to establish their own righteousness in contradiction to the righteousness that God demands of all humanity. A righteousness that Jesus spoke of in Matthew chapter 5 verse 20 when he said that except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Let me tell you grab a hold of knowledge, thinking that it's going to save you, to grab a hold of knowledge is not the fullness of the knowledge found in Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul himself had a little bit of knowledge, and look what he did to the church. And this is the problem with Native Americans today. They believe by pursuing spiritual cleansing in the smokehouse at the time of, say, Owen, and by giving according to shalangan, they will satisfy God's expectations. And it's sad to say this, but do we not find this even in the church today? This tragedy exists amongst uh, the people of God. We believe that if we just try a little harder, we just try enough to produce our own righteousness, God will be pleased with us. But I will say to you, it is of no value. In fact, God himself has determined the terms of salvation. He has determined the terms of righteousness. And what a perfect place to find what God truly thinks of uh, works righteousness than Luke chapter 18. Look at the picture. There in the streets, possibly of Jerusalem, a Pharisee walks. A handsome man. A tailored beard his robe flowing behind him, his phylacteries being blown in the wind as he walks through the streets and the people look at him and they go, oh, if we could just be like you. And he says, of course, if you could just be like me. Look how hard I work. Aren't you impressed? And so he goes and stands and he looks up to heaven with boldness and he says, ah, Lord, thank you that I am saved and like you thank you that I am not like him and him him is the tax collector who is trying to find a hovel to hide himself he's trying to find a place where God's sight might not destroy him and he cannot even look up to heaven he's ashamed and there he sits and like the maid servant as she's described in Psalms, he, he's downcast and his hands are lifted up. I have nothing to offer you. I have nothing to make you be well pleased with me. In fact, all I have is, as Isaiah the prophet says, filthy rags. And what does God say? I have. I have my son, who I have given to you. And did Paul not write this later on when he said, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. For it is by grace that you are saved through faith, and thus not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works that no one can boast. It's all, beloved friends, about Jesus let me summarize this and conclude. Native Americans have a history of Holocaust. They blame the church for everything. They blame the church for being complicit with the government. And as a result, as I've said, they've resurrected their own spirituality. And they have purposefully chosen to seek a form of righteousness apart from Christ. A righteousness found in Sayoan and the Longhouse. And beloved friends... If they continue along this path, they will find it ends in eternal devastation. But you know what God has done? He has provided a solution. He did so for Israel. He did so for the world. And He does so for the indigenous tribes. How? Through the person of Jesus Christ. Indeed. How? By sending people like you and me and my family To go tell them the story of grace. Here's my final point. In the final verse, Paul sums all of this up, and this is going to be very quick. By saying that the Jews are ignorant of the truth concerning Jesus Christ and his work. And that Jesus is God's provision. The very thing I've been preaching here this morning. He is. Look at what Paul says here. He is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Is that not beautiful? Let us hold that in our hearts this morning that Jesus is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. You and I don't have to work. In fact, Martin Lloyd Jones calls this the Christian Charter. That's what we should remember it as the Christian Charter two things that I want to mention as I move on. To enter the kingdom of heaven, the Jews knew that they had to meet the requirements of the Mosaic Law. Everyone born into this world knows they have to meet the requirements of the Mosaic Law. And and knowing this means that we have a standing problem with God. Because the problem is that God does not judge us by how zealously we try and keep our fates, our global fates. Now, we are judged in terms of the righteous demands of the Ten Commandments. And as James says, you miss one, you miss them all. So when we come and we stand before the Ten Commandments, we should not be standing there and going, I think I can do this, that'll be a little tough. We should be facing that and saying, this, this is the character of God. This is what He wants. It is impossible What hope do we have? And if we just page the scriptures, we see it's Jesus himself. Another terrible and false notion that we find on reservations is this. Again, sadly, it's birthed out of the church. Oh, God loves everyone. You just don't realize it. You know, that translates into the Indian mind. If we just realize that God loves us, And we continue faithfully in the longhouse. In other words, if we mix God's love with, say, Owen, we'll be fine. No, Paul refutes this idea. He categorically states this in Romans chapter 3. That we are justified and we are redeemed by the person of Jesus Christ as he came into this world, lived under the law, died and rose again and is coming. And that means, my dear friends, there is no boasting is none because Christ is the end of the law not human effort God has satisfied that all in the person of Jesus Christ we are all fallen short of the glory of God and Jesus alone gives us the benefit of his person by faith now how does that gospel how am I able to bring that gospel to people who reject this outrightly It was so wonderful hearing this. I think it was an African song. For a moment there, I felt a little at home. But we have a principle, and I'm going to end off with this. We have a principle that in in the African languages is sabona, And it simply means this. Remember, these are a misreached people, and they're forgotten. Sabona simply means this. In the West, in the white man's world, if you go to a bus stop, and you see somebody there. The first thing you do is you go, oh, now I'm going to have to speak to this guy, greet this guy. So you stand with your back to them. It's not typical of who we are. And then we find something to do on our cell phones. We don't want to greet them. Well, I shouldn't say that in the South, you actually do. <laughs> but in Africa, if you come to a bus stop and you see another person there, The first thing you do is you say, Sabwona, I see you, I acknowledge you. They in turn would say, Sabwona, Njani, thank you, I see you too. That is one of the first principles we apply when we come to Native Americans. We say, you're not forgotten, we see you. And then we apply the uh, the, the method or uh, um, method Um, Of of gift of mission, which comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul says to the Corinthian church, I'm going to collect some money for these folk here in Jerusalem. They're suffering. So, So I'm going to collect this, I'm going to give it to them, and they're going to pray for you. And this beautiful reciprocity begins of the giver and the receiver. And then eventually the receiver becomes the giver. There we see the partnership. I see you. I acknowledge you. I want to give you a gift. And what better gift can you give those that are lost than the gift of Jesus Christ? And they, in turn, they begin to dialogue and they begin to share. And then we do four more things. We form a community of invitation. When you sent a summer team up, we formed a community and we invited the Lummi and the Nooksack to join us. And we began to have conversations, share our stories. And then we moved to a stories of invitation. Tell us your story. Well, we are the Chichesh Kukwilek, the people who survived the flood. Well, isn't that amazing? We have a story in the Bible about Noah's flood and why the world was flooded. Dialogue begins. And then we move into respect as invitation. We don't come as those who know everything, but we come as learners, teach us a little bit about yourselves. And then we move into the final invitation as charity. What a beautiful example when we look at Mother Teresa, working in the streets of Calcutta, there she took care of the marginalized, the dying, those who were of the lowest caste, wiping their wounds and feeding them, bringing dignity and death. And you know what the Indian government did, by the way? They, in fact, gave her a place to continue her ministry. The Hindus gave her the temple of Kali. If you know anything about Kali, uh, it was the god, or I think goddess of death. They gave her this place to take care of the needs of the dying. So these four principles of invitation coming alongside, I see you, Saborna, and this beautiful reciprocal gift of mission produces what God has planned all along, and that is Native Americans coming to Christ. Today, in fact, I just got a text this morning again. Brother, when are we starting to build a church? The Indians are building two churches on our mission field. One for the Nooksack and one for the Lami. And I will tell you, this could not have happened without people like St. Andrews. Without sending people to the lost, they'd never hear the gospel. They would never come to salvation. So consider yourselves as those in the procession of God's walk through our time and history and amongst the, 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 the nations of the world. Yeah, you are, St. Andrews, to be invited to the most glorious task that human humanity could ever be invited to. So praise God. Join him. Don't stop praying. Don't stop giving. And don't stop going. May the Lord bless you. Amen.